Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Enlightenment with a question mark. It was given by Jocelyn Del Rio on Saturday, August 14th, 2021 via Zoom. Jocelyn is a mother, artist, logotherapist, and spiritual practitioner who has been involved in homeschooling, teaching, and reclaiming burnt out land to become farms and homes. She is interested in growth and in the possibilities of the human being and the earth. In this talk, given to a group of students of Lee Loswick, Jocelyn refers to a number of teachers and friends of the Western Baal tradition, while discussing a theme that has relevance for anyone on a path in which the essence of what has been called enlightenment is considered. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Jocelyn Del Rio. Thank you all who are here for being here. And we titled this as enlightenment with a question mark. I really don't care if, if there's life on Mars or will be or was, but I'm very interested in the possibilities of life on Earth, of evolution and of how far we can go and be and do. And I'm going to start with, a, with an essay, a section of an essay by Khalil Gibran in The Prophet, which has always moved me. And it, and it seems like somehow the sequence of steps that, that practice has for us. And it says, you have been told that life is darkness. And in your witness, you echo what was said by the weary. And I say that life is indeed darkness save when there is urge, and all urge is blind, save when there is knowledge, and all knowledge is vain, save when there is work, and all work is empty, save when there is love, and when you work with love, you bind yourself to yourself, and to one another, and to God. Work is love made visible. And so that one has been one of the things that keep that sort of seeking movement in me. One thing I know for sure is that enlightenment exists. I mean, I've, I've seen it in, in Lee. I've, I've seen it when the rainbows came out in the dry sky when he left his body. I've seen it in Narno sitting and lighting up. But it exists not as an object somehow. We seem to think of enlightenment as this thing that we can achieve or acquire. It exists the way gravity and speed exist in the realm of magic, mystery, and, 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 and you can feel them happening, but you can't grasp them. You can see the effect, but you can't grasp them. And so there's always this awareness of when the storm might come up and I feel the speed and, the, and, <laughs> and I 
get up on something and fall off it and I feel gravity, you know, when am I going to have this sense of this possibility? And basically, there, these things that happen only in activity where, where you can see them, where you can see them happening. They're energetic fields and the energy of, of creation. Breath is also one of these things that exist, but you can't put your hands on them, you know? You can't own it. You can't hold it, grasp it in any way, you know? You can manipulate it to a certain extent. But there's an awareness that that's always going on somewhere, somehow. In the space, I just have to be aware of it, you know? And going into the investigation area of it, when I first met Lee, somebody told me, oh, you know, you, you, you need to check ha 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 the, his, his internet page. <laughs> it was something to the effect, if you're looking for enlightenment, look somewhere else. Now, when I looked it up the other day, I find on his internet page a whole series of photographs and books and all kinds of things. It's no longer that one phrase of his but then i start and i started looking up all his things that he said and let loose sometimes on the night and there's one where he says just assume it which says when i first started to teach i had a shift in consciousness and i knew what reality was it went away it always does so Everything I'm doing now is based on an assumption. When I knew what was real, I knew what was real. So why should reality change? Reality does not change. I've been living like that for 24 years on an assumption, and it works. I don't understand why other people can't live like that. Looking to find it, that experience again is just nostalgia. I can't live on the assumption of having experienced reality, but I can live on the assumption that knowing that it exists, that I've had the experience of seeing it living and active. And I, I remember something that Parvati said once. She says, your harinam, your practice will touch others who may not even know they are seekers. And that was my experience. I didn't know I was a seeker when I met Lee. But his practice touched that space of knowing that there was something there that I was seeking, you know, his, his, his manifestation. And also I, I've seen enlightenment and in, in archetypical, the stories and, and, and history and the language and the appearances are all different, but the manifestation is undeniable. Okay, how do you approach this? In The Alchemy of Transformation, which is the first book of Lee's that I read, something stayed printed on my mind for these 20 years. And he says, listen, first things first. It may be true that you are not separate from God and that you are one of the cells in the great body of the divine. But if your behavior in every moment does not serve reality, then the truth of it is essentially irrelevant. If you are in a supermarket when somebody drops a bag of groceries on the floor and you don't help that person pick things up, what difference does it make how deeply you know you're a being of God? That has always 
affected me. I'm more into the action, into the doing in daily life than I am into this these austere practices and the technical practices. So there's this tendency to be in daily life in action with my practice. And then I ran across another quote of his, a reminder of why I do this. It's called becoming accident prone. We have to practice rigorously, even though practice does not lead linearly to realization. It has been said that enlightenment is an accident and practice makes us accident prone. Practice establishes an environment that encourages maturity, clarity, and breakthrough. It doesn't guarantee it, but it makes it more likely. So the maturity, clarity, and breakthrough are my first aims and intentions rather than enlightenment. No, if I can get that far, I'm feeling good. Okay. And then the, the, the experience, what Lee calls sparks and flashes. If we think that flashes in the nervous system mean that we have attained some realization, then we are probably fooling ourselves and we'll probably try to fool others. If, on the other hand, we understand that there's a vast encyclopedia of phenomena that are the sparks between the weak and temporal body and the flow of energy in the universe, then we might be able to make some use of our experience. The process of transformation is not just energetic or subtle but an organic process in which the nervous system becomes capable of holding a greater charge of energy or spiritual force. And that's where I'm at, you know, without aiming at anything in particular, but saying, how do I use this to feed my practice? He says, if we use the arising of phenomena to prove something to ourselves, we are handling it in the wrong way. Transformation is not about momentary phenomena. It is about who we become after a lifetime of practice. The aim of the path is to become a complete human being involving relationships, the appreciation of beauty, and empathy for the suffering of others. And so that gives me more aim, no? To become a complete human being involving relationships, the appreciation of beauty, and empathy for the suffering of others. It gives a whole lot of range of area in which to work with benefits in themselves. That's good enough for Enlightenment 101, no? And then recently, I came across a statement from a Buddhist teacher. Her name is Jehyang Padma. She was on the radio program. She said something that absolutely exploded my, <laughs> my world. She says, there's no enlightened person. It's a Buddhist stock. There is no enlightened person. There is only enlightened activity. I, I had to get up when I heard this and stop the show. And I, I've got to integrate this somehow or other. It made me get up and dance. There was a, a whole sensation that this information gave me. It took me about a day to come back and finished hearing the program, which was very interesting, but this line really blew me apart in a great way. <laughs> and it's, the sensation persists when I type the words or I read them or, you know, there's my pathway. I don't know about anybody else. Other people take other roads and do other things. But for me, this is my entrance into this. So then I start analyzing a little bit and go through the 
the first line of that phrase is, there is no enlightened person. Now, I've been hearing all this time about there is no person that you can pin on to, or there's no objects. It's all mental. But I think of the way we use the word in the West, because that's in the East where it's not so personified. I wrote this up. The very word person, which comes from ancient Greek theater as persona, actually means actor. It describes somebody who expresses a story, a plausible fiction, a drama with a plot and biases, with heroes and villains, in a way meant to teach, entertain, titillate, provoke an emotional or intellectual reaction, even a catharsis in others. The actor's aim is to get recognition from and influence over the audience. It must be said that the audience identified with these personae because they acted very much the same way people did in life and still do. To this day, we revere and encourage the Greek concept in the Western world. We put these personalities up on pedestals as though they were the gorgeous marble statues of Greece and Rome and the Renaissance. We even create lifestyle around these creations bow down to them, repair them, profit from them, and invest a great deal in their continuing existence. Persona in the actor becomes person. But can that whole package become enlightened? I don't think so. The terms are not compatible. And with with that image of these Greek figures that we so revere in my head, you know, and they're, they're... full of, of hormones and ideas and, you know, all the things that we make up the people that we are. I compare them to when I went to Angkor Wat on the fringes and the back end, end of, the, of the woods, past the temples and so on. There's some huge heads, Buddha heads. And the expression of Ananda, of bliss, expression of peace, of serenity, totally androgynous. This, this is not a man. This is not a woman. This is, this is a being. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's amazing that this could have been lived, could have been registered by the artists, by the stonemasons, who got this soft, tender expression out of a huge block of stone. There's something going on back there. There's magic there. <laughs> Actually, when I saw them, I sat down and cried. And it was tears of, of joy, of relief, of, of a certain homesickness. There was something in me that felt, I belong here and this belongs to me. This is a possibility. I have one of the photographs. I traveled that time without a camera, but my son took a photograph of one when he went and I have it with foot of my bed. Not at the foot, but on the right. And that's the first thing I see in the morning. It's one of these, these faces that this, this, this is real. Both modern biology and Buddhism would say that you can't find it. It's all your emotions, your beliefs, your relationships. And it's being constructed and deconstructed continually. And continually subject to change. And then Jiaheng Padma, the one who said this, there's no enlightened person, but there is a, enlightened activity. She describes that very impermanence as an advantage. Okay, so this is fluid. 
this person is fluid. You can be from here to there, be that which nothing can take root in, maybe, <laughs> if we look at it like that. It's an advantage. It's, it's a freedom that there is no I. There is no separate solid thing. We are continually in process, always changing. Even experiences are not permanent. Everything is connected, all of that. As she says, it, all of what is outside comes through and departs. In reality, we cannot say, I am depressed, but the spirit of depression is visiting. I've heard this before. Arnaud has said it. Anger is arising. Don't identify with this. But that fluidity becomes a huge advantage. A chance to be in that process. A chance to not hold on to something. A chance at freedom in the sense of not being free from obstacles and limitations. Like we're all trying to get rid of, you know, I have this thing that I carry around. I want to be free of it but a chance to be free for something. I can get rid of that obstacle because I'm going someplace. I have something to do. You know, It's freedom for and not from, if that makes any sense. And going back a bit to the definitions of personhood, Red Hawk carries the substance of an I- or the lack of substance of an eye even further. He says, me myself is not an entity or a being. What I call me myself is in fact an action. It is a recoil from relationship, from the present. It's a strategic movement to avoid relation. Me myself is fear in action. And this takes me back to, the, to that action word. There's only enlightened activity. There's only action. And so some of our actions, some of our activity are sourced, as, as Red Hook says, in fear. He uh, goes on to say, what self-observation revealed to me, that what I knew and called myself was a collection of memories. It was a collected personal history of this particular mammal, endlessly repeated. And that again speaks to me of action. Are we endlessly repeating the same thing? Are we using our Memories as an object, as a definition, as an identification. Lee addresses the fear of relationship directly in terms of fearing a relationship with enlightenment itself. I looked up the quote because I only remembered the middle line. And the first and third line turned out to be extremely relevant to me. And this is the quote where he says, All is transitory. You are afraid. And that brings up the fear that we have. And our actions are based on fear. You are afraid the big one, the moment of release, will be as transitory as your Christmas toys. And it is. For enlightenment is the knowledge that all experience is transitory, including enlightenment. This is not an indictment of experience. The Lord delights in the transitory. It is the humor of God. And that one blew me away again. I had read it before, but not with this, not with this clarity. But it blew me away again because of the fear and because being transitory, the Lord delights in the transitory. It is the humor of God. And it takes me back to that relief at the dissolution of the person. 
I don't have to hold on to this. I can be, I can be the next wave. I can, I can do something else. No, because that is what is the process. It's, it's what is real. It is what is asked of us to, to flow, to be fluid, to go with it, to move into the next experience and not hold on to the memory and the identification of the previous one. So when I typed this up here, there was a huge stop in my mind, an infinity of sensations in my body, relief, joy. I was trembling, a, a rush of delight, and, and this whole nif- emptiness here. I can't sit here any longer and, and type out ideas, <laughs> you know? It was similar to an out-of-body experience I once had where I didn't feel my body, I only had my sight. But even what I saw was not relevant, not connected, not connected to any kind of action. Here it was. I could see what was happening. There was this huge space in me. And when I read that, that it's transitory. That's good. <laughs> no. You don't have to hold on to it. That whole transitory concept kind of nestled in with work that I've been doing on expectations, my expectations of life, expectations of other people, their expectations of me, my expectations of myself, all you know, all that stuff that one carries. A connection with the law of impermanence where the law of impermanence is no longer a threat. It's no longer, you're going to lose this, you're going to lose that. This is going to go sideways. It's a promise. It's a blessing. There's a whole shift in the way I look at that, no? It's an ally, too. It becomes a universal force, like, like gravity, like speed, like enlightenment. It's something I can move with. The choreography of the relationship is more of a dance, not of a battle. I don't have to defend myself against impermanence. And so that was very, very exciting. (laughs) And then I found a book of these that touches on that experience directly. And he says, seeking is suffering. The upgraded form of the search is the spiritual search. The average person searches for happiness by trying to fulfill his or her need systems in conventional ways. Money, power, sex, possessions, and position. Transporting one's search from this worldly direction to a spiritual one is still seeking. Changing direction of your running on the wheel does not get you off it. It merely breaks the monotony while reinforcing the sense of someone who is sinking. Seeking is intrinsically hopeless. It does not sustain happiness. Being happy is the antithesis of seeking. Neither one can generate or sustain the other. It is so simple. The absence of one is the presence of the other. To be free of the search is to be free of what causes it the fear and suffering inherent in a separative life. No? So the knowledge that what I seek is transitory in accord with the Lord's light, and that seeking is suffering, maybe it will cease in the future, makes the present 
at all the activities therein a lot more important. Instead of seeking, it's like being here and now. What am I doing with the here and now if I'm not seeking? It's a bit like this sensation I had with my therapy. And I don't remember anything about what the therapist said, except one time she said, where was your mother when all this was going on? And that was like leading me into another loss and another problem. And I suddenly thought, where is my daughter's mother while all this is going on? And that stopped the therapy and went to work. (laughs) No, it's it's those moments that say, here and now, what are you going to do? Where are you? What are your resources? Do it. Get on with it. No? And my next quote from Lee is a call to action. And he says, I cannot remain untouched and untroubled. And in this state of trouble and touchedness, I must complain and address the inequities and sins of those who refuse to be blessed by the breath and caress of the divine in its personal and transcendental forms. To deny the reality of transformation and to allow ego and all its criminal animations to run unchecked over every sacred ideal, over every objective good, is, as far as I am concerned, demanding condemnation and much, much more than that, demanding action in the contrary camp, action that establishes the kingdom of God on earth and in the heart and soul of mankind. Nothing less will satisfy me and nothing less should satisfy you either. Here I received the call not to look for something for me, but to act, to act in relation to what, what I see out there, to those Buddha faces, to, the, to what I saw in Lee, to, I don't need to seek that. I need to do something about it now, here and now. And I'm reminded of the questions that Lee asked various times in his last journal. Can you do it? Yes, you can. But will you do it? And here I've got some questions for anybody out there. Can it be that I have it backwards? That it is not enlightenment that produces enlightened activity, but enlightened activity that leads to enlightenment and sustains it? Question two. Does this explain why so many self-proclaimed or media-proclaimed enlightened persons end up believing that any activity of theirs, no matter what, is therefore an enlightened activity? Although it may not be. Yeah, I mean, that's identification. That's what we do. I mean, that's the root of everything, isn't it? The problem of identification. Mm -hmm. So when people think they're enlightened or what they're doing is enlightened, then that's just another form of identification. So. You either see through that or you don't. And if you don't see through it, then whatever you're identifying with is still going to be a problem. That's why this phrase of there's no enlightened person, there's only enlightened activity, to me is so impactful. Because if I can go into the activity without tagging the person along, what is wanted and needed? And then I I ended up with a fun question. Is enlightenment like the wing of a butterfly? In that if you touch it too much, it can no longer fly. These things, if you handle them, they kind of, they get jaded. No? Leave it out there. Leave it a mystery. Don't be picking at it. And let it fly. 
And then considering the possibility of un or non-enlightened action or activity, because if there is enlightened activity, there is unenlightened activity. It's like, what do I have to do to drop the patterns and dynamics of this negative pull? And then I think identification is the big one there. And that reminds me of an explanation of Lee's that also was a huge sensation experience when I heard it. His explanation of evil, of how it can possibly exist in the creation of a loving God. It was very disturbing to me, always was. So the the answer was like quite simple. It's a matter of choice, generally unconscious and programmed by suffering and darkness. These are the acts of a being or an entity or person who decides and declares, I will not serve. Serving in any way, shape, or form or refusing to serve is the determining factor of the quality of activity. I'm just thinking that to not get caught in the trap of identification. I mean, if I keep my focus on serving, I'm not like as a should, mm-hmm. but, but as an impulse that I sense somewhere. And if I feed that and just stay with that, I feel like I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This point, I have to say that you're bringing about how. Not having an eye and being fluid is an advantage, is like really freeing. I really sense that. I've always kind of looked at it like, well, there's this obstruction, even if I don't verbalize it this way. This is a perspective on it that's entirely different that, I don't know, there's just a sadness actually that arises in me around loss and about accepting that transitoriness is okay. Yeah, transitoriness. I've come to see it as an opportunity. I can add a new dimension to whatever my life or being or existence or experience. To me, it creates, I don't know, a sense of longing instead of loss, maybe. Yeah. Along with that line of of it all being transitory and it all being in, in God's creation, we have a picture of a friend of my son's who was getting married a month later. His companion, his partner, sent this picture to us. He was at the beach and taken by a shark. Nobody saw him go, nobody, nothing, no? And she writes this thing. She says, loss is nothing but change. And change is nature's delight. And that's, we all have loss and change is nature's or God's delight. You're talking about action reminds me of something Lee mentions in uh, words of fire and faith. He talks about an enlightened community. Mm-hmm. He goes right to the essence, the first two laws of enlightened community. One is a law of communication <laughs> where what people are saying. You're, you're hearing beyond what your habit wants to listen for. Oh, the second law was the law of hospitality and that you're always holding the other in regard, regardless of how reactive they may be. So two laws, communication and hearing. And 
the other about hospitality, and it's about seva. A small quote that came out in just this. Devote yourself to enlightened community, not enlightenment. The reason for my problems is that we really believe on some primal level that we are separate from God, and we see ourselves as isolated, separate events in the universe. If we realize that community is the essential manifestation of the great process of divine evolution, and that selflessness establishes the height of ecstasy, that you are happiest, genuinely happiest, when you have the least concern for your own personal isolation. Why would anyone not work toward making that a viable possibility? When I consider this, I have the image of, uh, this is all at the sublime level, but at the day-to-day practical level of a school community in Canada, where the end of the school year, of, for all the grades, the work had been done on ecology and, and, and sharing the world. And in the auditorium, the stage was set up, and instead of the first row of seats, they had bicycles on blocks. And while the kids were giving their skits and their songs and their explanations and their stories, the adults were up there on those bicycles pedaling like mad to keep the lights on, to keep the lights on and the microphones on. And they were doing seva (laughs) for the community and for the evolution of those kids in a very practical way. That's the image I have when I think of enlightened community. And certainly my experiences and my time at the community, it's a before and after in my whole life. That feeling of community, feeling of being part of something that's working in that direction and being able to do my little piece and to appreciate what everyone else was doing. One of the things that I learned in community or that I started developing in community was that question of me, of identifying, but also of identifying with mine. You know, there's me and mine. (laughs) Identifying with mine. And slowly but surely, for instance, I've discovered that that my children are not my children. As Khalil Gibran says, they're the children of life. They're the sons and daughters of life itself. They're not mine. I love them to pieces. I think think they're wonderful and I'll be there always for them. But they're not mine. The property here, a dirt lot and burnt out cornfield, it wouldn't even grow corn anymore. And I've spent the time reforesting and growing things on it and getting it back to life, but it's not mine. I'm just the custodian for it for this period of time. Digging for the vegetable garden, and we found a a stone from a metate, you know, the tortilla grinders, and a little stone cup. This was somebody else's way before, and it'll be somebody else's later. I'm only doing what I can for it to be more alive on my watch. But after this, who knows, you know? So being part of a community has eroded that concept of mine, which is so identifying, no? But going a little back to the evil and serving, you know, I will not serve. I started thinking about the quality of activity, okay? And it took me back to something that I read, not when it originally came out, because I was occupied with other things, but later on, which was Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance where Robert Persig talks about quality, both in objective and subjective forms. 
You know, he, he says the world is made up of quality. It makes me think of looking under that person, which is not such quality, <laughs> you know, the way, the way we look at personhood now, to find objective quality like in basic goodness, what Rinpoche says. The origin of existence is basic goodness, or no would say intrinsic nobility and dignity. So there's that quality there that we have covered up with all kinds of neurosis and I will not serve in all kinds of junk. Can I focus in on quality? If I'm going to produce something, I want to produce good quality, a meal, a yoga class, a therapy session, a painting, you know. I think quality is something we need to consider for what I'm offering, what I'm giving back to the world. I have this enormous gift of life, now what I'm giving back. Then there's a whole bunch of references of Lee's for losing that identification. One from the alchemy of transformation, he says, the alchemy of consciousness, which is transformation, changes the concept of oneself to one of no self. That doesn't mean non-existence or lack of consciousness. It means that one functions as an integral element in their environment rather than as an element that is always confronting the environment with some need to compete or establish separation. You know, I want to fix it. I want it, I want it to be different. I want it some other way. The expression of discipline is not antagonistic to, nor does it exclude a life that is fluid as a response to the will of God. Rather, discipline and structure are kind of matrix in which this spontaneity shows up. This work is not so much about getting to God as allowing the will of God to become active. The strategies of ego, our mechanicalness, our perspectives on life, the our attitude of duality, are all effective shields that do not allow the will of God to enter our being. Yet the benediction of God is always on, always active. We don't need to somehow earn it to climb a ladder to get to it. All we need to do is make the space for it to show up. That is, become receptive to what is always ready and living and working and active. Paradoxically, the fact that this can take a long time, even a lifetime, is part of the lesson of the futility of ego's attempt to successfully achieve what it thinks that it is achieving. That takes me back to the don't, don't strive, don't obsess, just be fluid and open up here to the will of God. And, and I remember Robert Svoboda's advice, relax. Relax, relax. <laughs> Don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> because all this striving and ambition and obsession is only creating your own obstacles. No? And when you're striving for a, something, there are a million things that are going to get in the way. There's a million other influences at work. In, in yoga, we say you have the right to your action but not to the results. It may not turn out like you wanted it. And that's something that I've had to learn too. It's like, okay, I wanted this to look like that. I wanted this to happen this way. I didn't want this to happen. Yet there are a million other influences and things going on that make it come out different. And that's what is as it is. No, There's an expression in Spanish. La fruta no está madura. Porque a mí se me antoja. The fruit isn't ripe just because I want to eat it. 
<laughs> you know, it's not going to go my way. <laughs> and along with the relax, 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 Lee has a quote that says, ease up on ego. The process of any true form of spiritual life is not to get rid of ego. It is, after all, an integral part of your existence. Did you ever see a human being function without ego? The error lies in ego's pretensions to be absolute, to being separate unto itself. The attempt to kill it gives substance to these pretensions and implies it has an independent life that must be destroyed. The process is to accept it, enjoy it, and observe it with humor. When your ego surfaces and you know that something is ego-motivated, be responsible for that and enjoy it. The process is grace, not struggle. And I'm an examiner of words, so when I say be responsible for that, responsible is made up of two words, our ability to respond. And it will not be more and it will not be less than where we are at the moment. So don't start kicking yourself around because you didn't get it right. No, you be responsible where you are at the moment. Another quote from Scotland. Why do angels fly? Anybody? Because they take themselves lightly. So relax. (laughs) And in his last quote, he says, The process is grace, not struggle. So the process is grace, but it's up to me to function gracefully. Let me as a human being get the human part right so that the being can flourish and thrive. Let me make good choices. Let me keep a sense of humor, common sense, forgiveness, apology, and gratitude. Let me be reliable. Let me look both ways when crossing the street. Let me listen and see more and talk less. Let me obey the law of hospitality, either as host or as guest. Let me eat the local food in India, but not drink the water. Let me help the stranger in the supermarket who dropped the groceries. Let me strive not to be right, but to be in relationship. Let me reach beyond what I think are my limits. Let me trust the process. Let me serve, praise, and then serve some more. After all, there is only enlightened activity. <laughs> and the, the quote that came out on the introduction, it says, from the alchemy of transformation, transformation happens in action, in activity. This is Lee. It is not a passive or static state like samadhi or sartori, which are not transformative in and of themselves. What is transformative is the work that you begin to do or the life that you begin to lead based on the inspiration of these states of bliss and non-duality. God is served in the midst of who you are and what you're becoming as a human being. In the midst of your struggles, your neurosis, your fears, your joys, your passions, not from denying or standing apart from your humanness. To me, based on the inspiration, not on the achievement of bliss or non-duality or enlightenment or any of these other things that we know exist, but I don't have the experience of. But I have the experience of the inspiration of that 
I don't use the word desire because desire generally involves something else, but the but the longing or or like where Kali Gibran says, unless there is an urge, unless there is that aim, that that hunger, and that hunger and that longing is enough to go on. You don't need the achievement of, or I don't need the achievement of a certain state. Enough to go on. This time around, I don't know, maybe maybe another lifetime, it'll be different. And certainly all the activities that Lee inspired us to do, both things, the, the ones that you saw him doing, tired or not, the way he sang, the way he sat at his desk, the way he meditated, all these activities that you saw him doing and the activities that he made us do. He had us getting out of ourselves into action, into service, and training us in attention, like what is wanted and needed. It's like, pay attention. No? And I like the word pay attention because we pay for it. I pay for it with my no, with my who me, with my opinions, with my tiredness, with my pride, my resistance, all kinds of things to acquire that attention that he was offering. No? It's like what? How can I? How can I continue in in that activity without letting it go? And then Madhavaki said on the on a, on a previous talk, she says it can be as simple as feeding the birds and watering the plants if you have nama in your heart. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It just has to be. Consistent, you know? I look for activity to become sacred ritual and not just another habit through intention and dedication, whatever whatever the activity is. And I remember the story that Lee told in terms of choosing activity. In terms of choosing activity, a sage arrives at a kill town and, and there's a racket going on. It's nightfall and he's looking for a place to stay and there's a racket going on and they're shooting fireworks and banging pots and waving swords. And, and he said, what? what's going on? And, he's, and they said, well, we have to get rid of the darkness. And it happens every day. There's a spell on us and it takes us a long time to get rid of the darkness. And it's been for lifetimes. Ever since we've lived here, this has been happening. So he just match lights a candle. That's where you choose the activity. Waving the darkness away takes a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of defeat. But if you can just do the simple thing that turns the corner, you know, turn on the light, make a light instead of fighting the dark, would be the, the metaphor that, that I have in my mind. How do I cast a light on this to get rid of this darkness? And a reminder from Carl Jung, you are what you do, not what you say you are going to do. What I, what I say I'm going to do, I don't know. So in, with the question of activity, also the question of karma comes up. And Robert Fulola has said that this pandemic is, is human karma. And in Western culture, we tend to equate the word karma with destiny. But the word actually means action. Any and all action results in an outcome which turns up somewhere in the future, immediate or distant, and can be construed as fate if not understood. As Arnaud says, one harvests what one has sown, 
and it is impossible to break the cause-effect chains and to prevent actions from bearing their fruits. Even the refusal to act is an act with inevitable consequences. There's personal, family, tribal, community karma and karma that involves all of humanity and all living things. Hence the Bodhisattva vow to save all sentient things. And so a lot of karma, I don't know where it came from. I don't see it coming. I used to think I'm not good enough because I couldn't fix this or I couldn't prevent that or I couldn't do something. But there's all the influence of karma. And so right now it's like, okay, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do this. What can I do? What can I do with quality, with intention? And maybe it'll change something. If it didn't work out, that's somebody else's fault. No, I did what I could, or I do what I can, considering that karma is out there. And in enlightened activity, the person will not leave a great karmic trace. The activity does. You know, sometimes we don't even remember who started this movement, but the movement is there and has impacted many, many, many lives. The Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, have by their enlightened activity, I don't know if they're enlightened or not, but by their activity have impacted huge amounts of lives. So a little grain of sand or a little drop in the water bucket is what is up to me, no? Arnaud de Gervan asks, what will allow you to act without creating a chain of actions and reactions? His answer, non-egoic action. What has to be done rather than what do I want to do for my security and for my joy? Seek first the kingdom of God and its justice, and all the rest will be given to you besides. Trust in providence, or in other words, surrender to the universe's process. Be cosmocentered and no longer self-centered. What has to be accomplished? That is it. Action is the answer, the right and obvious response. I am no longer wondering in that moment about what I want, but about what has to be done. And then he adds, from the depths of yourselves, from a more real level in you, the answer will arise little by little and will guide you. You can say, this is here and now what the situation needs from me. I do it and that's it. I am taking into account the totality of the situation, including all the parameters, as far as I can feel the rightness of them today. And I am accepting, of course, with all my heart, both the happy and the unhappy consequences of my action. And he, he quotes um, Swami Prajnanpat, what you have to do, do it now, are the guru's words that not only make good sense or carry goodwill, but words that are part of a great knowledge, the sacred knowledge. Instructions like this lead towards our inner transformation in the highest sense of the word, from conflict to reunification from waste of energy to transformation of energy in order to make more and more subtle energy, from blindness of the mind that veils reality to the world as it is moment after moment. And the quote from Swami Prajantad that warms my heart is, joy is in action, not in planification. And so there's a lot of energy, but one of the things that has to be considered for this activity is the use or misuse of energy. And I give myself an intervenous shot of energy 
with this paragraph of Lee's. He says, give your life. The work wants your life. But only when you are in a love affair with life itself. Only when you are bright, strong, confident, capable, in short, alive. The work does not want some kind of dull, dispassionate, struggling humanoid. To give your life to the work is to give breath, passion, and activity to the work every day. You have to have a childlike, eternal beginner's mind, a belief in miracles. Like any day, anything can happen. And that one moves me too. <laughs> I have another quote from Papa Ramdas on contemplating beauty. In this case, a beautiful rose, Ramdas said, Blessed art thou, little beauty, for thy revealeth the face of my beloved. And Lee has the, the, the quote to close with. Just be kind, from Lee. You don't have to label your illusions to be able to live life in reality or truth. How you act is the first thing. That is, with kindness, generosity, compassion, dignity, respect. The ability to extract joy from life where there is joy and sorrow from life where there is sorrow, regardless what goes on eternally. We can call that discernment or discrimination. Academically, if through your entire life you acted with impeccable integrity, serving others, and blessing the universe through the clarity of your behavior, it wouldn't matter what you were thinking or what you were doing interiorly. If you died, having never indulged the negative obsessions of ego, the anger, the greed, the violence, the cruelty, the pettiness, then you would be considered a great saint, and probably you would be. If we didn't deal with the mind at all and simply acted in a way that was constantly reliable, with kindness, generosity, compassion, dignity, and so on, we might not feel enlightened, but we would be enlightened, at least as good as enlightened, or maybe even better. <laughs>